Good evening, Mendonesia and World Wide Web. Uh, this is the Renewable Energy Hour. I'm Doug Livingston, and my co-host, Alex Aragon, as always, is here with me. Hey, Alex. Hey, Doug. How's it going? Oh, I'm doing all right. Good evening to you. Good evening. We got, a, we got one I've been looking forward to for a little while here tonight. Got what? somebody in, in online for an interview. So yeah, you were you were having fun with the idea of the geeks and the motorheads getting together, right? Yeah, let's let's get them together this time. <laughs> uh, we're gonna kind of go back a little bit from uh, from some of the renewable energy a little bit, kind of get into uh, energy efficiency is a lot of what I'm gonna aim for in technologies. We will be getting back to electric vehicles and such, but we're gonna deal with some internal combustion engines and. Uh, all the way back to the muscle car and moving forward from there, trying to figure out how to get more miles out of a drop of gas. So our guest tonight is Michael Mike or Michael Pratt. He's the lead automotive technologies instructor at Mendocino College. Hello, Mike. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. So uh, I got to give full disclosure here. Uh, I have a vested interest in the uh, Mendocino College uh automotive technologies uh, programs because my youngest son, Sky, is, uh, is a student there. Uh, he's learned a lot there and got some certificates, and he's uh, working full-time in a garage in Willits now uh, fixing cars. Uh, what, what do you guys have going on with your program? <laughs> what do you offer there? Yeah, so right now we offer um, – we, we reopen our smog program, so we offer our smog training. Um, we offer um, certificates and chassis. Um, well, let's go to the beginning. We offer a very basic intro class for anybody who just wants to learn about their own car. And that's really what the intro class is about. Learn about your own car, how to change a tire, what components are like. Then if you want to continue, we have certificate in chassis, and certificate in automotive technician, and then we have certificate in advanced automotive technician, which is similar to a smog certificate, although you still have to pay it past the, the state smog exam. And then we also have an associate of science degree um, for an overall, um, all overall rounded um, technician, which includes a lot of math because often when you, you know, a technician will often become a service manager or something along those lines, service writer, um, or even a business owner. Uh, business math comes in handy for them as well, so that's tied into their associate's degree. So three certificates currently and, a, and an associate's degree. And I understand you guys are working on expanding what you have, too. Uh, you're looking at getting a new EV program coming up? Yes, and that's the exciting part. So um, Electric I have vehicles. it in curriculum, and it's almost all been passed to have a whole EV program here, um, one being an introduction to hybrid vehicles. And nearly every manufacturer has a different way of configuring their hybrid um, technology, um, how, the bat how the batteries work, how the transmission works, when it kicks in. And then a full EV class after that. It's actually an alternative um, fuel class after that. And you can get an alternative fuel certificate for vehicles such as a Tesla or a Nissan Leaf that's a full electric vehicle. Um, and we're actually going to combine the, the, the intro to hybrid into our associate's degree because really nowadays every manufacturer has a hybrid. And then it would be above and beyond to get a certificate in um, um, alternative fuels. So are there a lot of shops right now that uh, still don't offer services for hybrids? It's interesting. It's more, more and more shops offer services for hybrids. Fewer shops offer services for a full electric vehicle. Um, the training is scarce, though. And so the demand's there. Um, the vehicles are there. 
And so um, Mendocino College is stepping up to try to get the get the workforce there for the demand. And there are going to be more vehicles there and more demand. There will. So there's, <laughs> yeah. there's got to be some uh, some of the technologies that overlap really well, though. Like, uh, you know, a lot of gas cars, they still have brake and chassis systems. If, if you were going to be uh, having, you know, a new student sign up and he wanted to really make his uh, – make his job opportunities as good as possible, what, do you, what kind of programs would you aim him toward? Well, the, the, every tech that goes into the field, honestly, almost all of them start in some sort of chassis, doing brakes, doing tires, something like that. Every electric vehicle, every gas vehicle, everything that's on the road, you can have a hydrogen vehicle, is going to have brakes. They're going to need alignment. They're going to have your chassis components. They're going to have tires. So I always recommend, if you're just going to do a few classes, get the chassis certificate. Um, and now with the hybrids, they still have everything a combustion engine has as well as what an electric car has. So even, even then, you still want to go through your engines and your, and your um, emissions diagnostics to um, even do the hybrid. Um, the full electric, yes, you've got something different with electric, but you're still running um, the same chassis, sometimes the same transmissions. Um, and you are um, still running with DC voltage as well as AC voltage a low voltage, like a 12-volt system, plus your high-voltage system. So all the classes leading up to it still very much apply to um, the more advanced cars we have out there. You just, they just keep adding more to it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, when, you, when you get these certificates and stuff, I mean, you know, are you ready for employment right away? I mean, do you guys have employers coming to the school looking for people? Yeah, so we have employers coming to the school regularly looking for people. Um, the industry is really in a need right now. Um, I've actually had a presentation for the um, school board not too long ago, and the North Coast, by per year, we're only putting out about one quarter of what the demand is um, if you go from um, north of Santa Rosa up to, to the Oregon border, um, which is called the North Far North um, District. If you go a little bit south, just the North Bay, it's closer to even. But then if you go to San Francisco or, or the, more of the Central Bay or South Bay, once again, the demand is almost double what the output is at any of the collective um, um, junior colleges or, or trade schools. So there's a big demand right now. Yeah. Are you guys seeing uh, students coming in with uh, any experience? Like are, they, are, are, the, are there any high schools you guys deal with uh, you get kids, students from, and they've already had some exposure to automotive, or is it just people in their dad's garage? What's great about it is we get a little bit of everything. So I'd say by the time, by the time they come here, they some have come, had high school, some have had agriculture, some are coming back to school to do something different. Um, we have quite a variety here, and then by the time we get to the third class. I'd say close to 40% of our students are working full-time already. They already found a job at a local shop, and then they come in here to continue their education, um, which is uh, really great to see because that adds such a better mixture to the class when you're discussing something and everyone has an experience with it or similar to it, and they often get that aha moment. That's why that component fits that problem. Now I understand why that is the way it is. Um, and so we get quite a mixture already. Next semester or beginning of next year, I've actually done it so that we should, every class will also be mirrored with a non-credit class. So if someone took it before and wants to come back for a refresher, they can. And I'm really excited about that because I should even help the mix more of the technicians we have. 
um, as far as the, the experience level, because the, having a various level of experience actually helps a lot. But before the program, before someone's over with the program, most of them have some sort of full-time job, and that's also why if you look at the if you look at the course catalog, almost all the classes out of this department are in the night are at night. They go mostly go from six till ten or five thirty till nine thirty because most of my guy, most of the people here work um, full time during the day, and it just doesn't make sense to have daytime classes. They don't they don't fill up for us. So what kind of projects do you guys work on in the shop? I mean, I kind of know the answer to this at some point because uh, at one point, uh, Sky, who's sitting here next to me now, he uh, completely rebuilt the front end of my uh, Toyota Tundra, redid the entire suspension, replaced all the ball joints and everything. It was in terrible shape. So he's re really able to get that project in. Are, are you guys like focusing on student projects that they bring in or what other types of, you know, what other projects do you guys do? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So um, I try, we all try to cater the projects to the class. So we don't really want to rebuild an automatic transmission in chassis class. But if we have a student that needs brake work done or chassis work done, if we have faculty or a different student on campus that isn't in the program that needs their brakes done, we try to, we try to create an environment of a shop running much like a dealership or a real shop would. We have a... a paperless work order system. We do have um, on-demand and various ways of looking up repair information. We actually have toolboxes at each and every lift. So just like if a technician was working at the shop, they don't go to the tool room to get tools. They have their own toolbox at the lift that's pretty well stocked with the tools they're going to need for most jobs. Then we take in the, the cars that apply to the class. It could be a student's car. It could be a faculty's car. It could be a friend or family or faculty. We write an RO on it. We make an estimate on it. If the, if it's going to be quite a bit of labor, we do have a small labor fee that we do charge, but that goes back to the car club, which then goes back into our, our um, chemicals and our oils and, and um, anything that's um, disposable within the shop to keep the shop running. We also have lab cars that are owned by the school or owned by the car club that we use for um, more intense work that basically they're donated to us. We take them apart and put them back together as many times as it applies. And when it doesn't apply anymore, it often goes to the records. So we have quite a variety of cars. We have students' cars, we have faculties and friends' cars, which are live units, and we have our school cars that are that belong to the school that we we use here on the premises just for these classes. I heard you've already got some electrics. Yes, and a good uh, nice that you asked that. So we have um, we have um, a few hybrids. We have uh, four Priuses just lined up for the hybrid class. We also have a Tesla that was donated. Um, anyone out there that has a hybrid car that's not a Tesla, that they're not wanting anymore because the batteries have gone bad or the car's totaled or something like that, we do take donations. It's one of my goals is that nearly every hybrid car has a different transmission, different manufacturers of different transmissions, different places where the high voltage is disconnected, um, different drivetrains. And my goal is with the hybrid intro classes is that everyone understands the basic parameters of how these vehicles operate to be able to repair them safely. And the more of them I have for demonstration for us to take apart and put back together, the better off we are. So I have been reaching out there looking for any more donations of anything that's hybrid or a full electric um, that we don't already have. And we have lots of Priuses. So anything that's not Prius, it's hybrid that somebody's looking to donate or get rid of, we, we would love to take it. Great. So, uh, You've been in the business for quite a while. Where did you? Where were you before you landed here? 
Oh God, I've been in the, I've been in or out of the business since I was before I was in high school. Um, but my job before I was here, I was the um, um, I was the field service engineer for BMW of North America. I oversaw the dealerships and the mini um, mini brand dealerships in the whole Bay Area region. My market went from Monterey up to Eureka. So um, that was my job before here. I had 20 years with that brand, um, 20 years, actually almost 20 years with the manufacturer itself. Um, before that, uh, sometime with the brand, um, I've done work at independence. I've done work at hobbies. I've done work at dealerships. I've worked for the people that write the service bulletins. I've been on the um, hotline for technicians calling in for, for questions or problems, um, all of North America, that includes Mexico and Canada. Um, I've done field service. I've done business management. I've kind of done the spectrum of automotive. And um, I, I started working here kind of as an adjunct for fun, and I loved it. And when an opportunity came to step in, I, I love being part of this community, and I really enjoy the school. I enjoy the work. Um, it's been a lot of fun. But I've done a lot in automotive. I started working in a shop for free in high school, and the deal was with that shop owner is – you work for me, but then you can use all my tools to work on your own car. And I was building my own 67 Mustang, so I could use the tools for free if I helped him around the shop. And that's kind of how I first started in, my, in early high school. Oh, you're a, you're a Mustang motorhead, huh? <laughs> yes, I am, much like your son. <laughs> well, I had, hey, here you go. I had a 66 back in my uh, high school days. Uh, wow. 66 Mustang. Oh, wow. Uh, that thing sure was good at burning gas. Uh, gas was pretty cheap back then. I think burning I, gas and accelerating straight ahead. Yes, yeah. I think I uh, bought gas for sixty-three cents a gallon at one point. Uh, back, you could fill up the tank for five dollars. I'm not that old. I'm only fifty-one. So, uh, but so I'm pretty. I was familiar with the '60s cars, and you know, it wasn't such a big deal to open the hood and take a look underneath there. You could see you know, they everything. Were originally just carburetor at one end and pipes on the other end of the engine and you know, put gas in it and uh, get room out of it. Now, now you have to take apart half the damn vehicle to get to one sensor or whatnot. Well, not just half the vehicle. Often you start with removing the subframe. I mean, depending on what the vehicle is, you take the whole drivetrain out. You know, they, they put it all into a subframe. They put it up into the chassis in the factory. It's kind of a more efficient way to do it. Huh. And if you have something hard to get at, you drop the whole engine transmission drive train subframe like the section of the of the frame out from under the car to get to just about anything if it's if it's a reasonably major repair and that's not that hard to do anymore yeah i wouldn't say it's easy, <laughs> <laughs> but it is <laughs> it's not as easy as the old days uh, so no yeah, no <laughs> when we started out with uh you know with the engines just a carburetor and an engine and pipes out the back it was yeah. pretty easy and straightforward but uh but, you know, we started getting all the smog around Los Angeles and uh, San Francisco and Detroit and all the, you know, New York, all the major cities. And uh, started to become really obvious that we needed to do something about that. So, you know, the well, how, did, how did we start making uh, engines less toxic? Sure. And, and, um, and more efficient. At the same time, which was absolutely necessary. And luckily, as much as people complain about um, – government rules pushing automotive manufacturers to be more efficient in many ways it's done us a lot of good i'm i'm a i was born in the 70s 
And there was times in at the L.A. Basin, we're kind of east of L.A., where schools got let out early because the smog was so bad you couldn't see and it was unhealthy air. Um, and there's more cars on the road now than there was then. So, so some of these restrictions have actually helped a lot more than people like to admit. People that have never seen smog that bad may not quite understand how bad it was at one time. Oh, man, um, I, I, it wasn't even that long. It was only like 20 years ago. I remember, you know, going to San Bernardino for a for a teaching solar gig, and people were telling me, you know, there's there's nine thousand foot mountains twenty miles that direction, and you could not see yep. them. Oh man, you yeah. could not see them. Interesting so, you say that, because that's where I was living, the San Bernardino yeah. area. When I was a <laughs> So in the first, in the early days of, you know, emissions controls and such, uh, you know, I guess the EPA started in 1970, they wanted to uh, clean things up. So how, how did they first go about it? They added a smog pump. And what did the smog pump do? Sure. Well, I'll go through each one. So the first thing, real smog device we ever had was a PCV valve, which is a positive crankcase ventilation valve. It took your crankcase um, vapors, which is a blow-by around your pistons, that they used to dump out onto the road and put it back into the intake, so it got reburnt, so these raw HCs wouldn't go straight into the atmosphere. And then the next step after that is, well, the cars are still burning, having too many um, um, partially big, um, um, burnt fuel um, coming out the exhaust, so then they came up with a smog pump, and if you pump air into the exhaust while the exhaust is so hot, it would continue to burn the fuel that didn't quite get done in the combustion chamber, because our early cars they only burned a portion of the fuel. They didn't burn all the fuel. Yeah, well, and, and so that, would help. That, that that's a key point. Both of those those strategies both reduced the toxic emissions, but they also yep. reduced the total fuel consumption, or at least used the total fuel and thereby reduced subsequent need. Yeah, so, well, the, so the secondary air, the air pump didn't really reduce much. It kind of lost a little bit of power, but the PCD uh, actually made your car more efficient and kept your inner, inner, innards of your engine actually cleaner. So it actually helped your longevity. Um, the, fuel, the, the air pump, it kind of it used a little horsepower, but it helped okay. clean a lot of air. It used, it used as much, or, <laughs> it used a little more horsepower to make that cleanup work than it, yes. than it so added in the reburn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So the, right. smog, then after the, the smog pump was kind of like adding an air conditioner that didn't do anything for you or uh, for keeping you cool or performance. It just, it, what it, if I understand right, it pumped air into your exhaust to give more oxygen yes. so the fuels could burn better? Yes. So by giving it more oxygen, it would help that fuel continue to burn. So that would be completely burned when it came out and uh, not partially burnt. Yeah, so and, that, burnt and that's not helping. better than than the, the, the CO, yeah. And that burn is not helping the engine perform at all. That's no, just That's just flaring off the, the waste at the top of the chimney. Exactly. And then the next level after that was the two-way um, um, catalytic converter. And that what that did was it, was a, it, was a, it used a catalyst to change your partially burnt fuel or unburnt fuel and turn that into burnt fuel. So, so so take your um, partially burnt fuel and your, your non-burnt fuel and burn it or catalyst it into a CO2, which would be, you know, what, at that time they considered clean air CO2 because it, was, mm-hmm. it wasn't a small... Well, it's, it's cleaner than polyaromatic hydrocarbons and exactly. particulates. <laughs> and uh, did, Does the catalytic converter help with nitrous oxides? 
Um, not yet. It does now. But when they first came out in 72, they did not. Okay. It didn't start helping out with nit- nitrous oxides until they came out with a three-way catalytic converter. But it, and but, then it helped with, with that as well. But again, catalytic converters are just cleaning up the exhaust. They're, they're not helping. In fact, they're slightly hurting the performance of the engine, right? Yeah. And with, with the modern one, it hurts it so little it's almost non-existent. With okay. The early That's ones, great. especially the ones that had like these marbles in there, it hurt it quite a bit. Yeah. With a modern one, it pretty much goes right through. You can see through the catalytic converter. It slows, sweet. It slows the volume down very, very little. Sweet, sweet. That's good news. So yeah. the catalytic converter, you know, it's what is it exactly? It's like this other can that's in line in the exhaust pipe before the muffler. It's a catalyst. Uh, you hear about we hear about them getting stolen all the time. And Platinum. Why yes. is that? <laughs> Platinum. The metals, the metals it's made out of are very valuable, and therefore they're very um, highly um, desired for recyclables. So people cut those out to recycle them to make extra money, much like if someone steals your air conditioner because they want the copper. Okay. Uh, another issue I remember hearing about them is uh, the fire danger. If you have them four-wheel drive going off into the grass and uh, having yes. grasses ignite, they get really hot, huh? Yes, they do. Uh, it's not as big of an issue as it used to be because a lot of them now are closer to the engine and closer to the exhaust manifolds because the closer you are to the engine, the more efficient the catalytic converter is. But back in the 70s and 80s when they were further back, um, that was a concern. Um, and it was something that people took pretty seriously, and especially in California or even then, um, we, we had fire season. Um, these days, most of them are tucked way up underneath and as close to the engine as possible. Because the closer you are to the engine, the quicker they get hot. The quicker they get hot, the sooner the catalyst actually does its job. Okay. So, uh, so, so did Sky learn all this? Hey, yeah, I've been learning so, so far. <laughs> I haven't quite taken our uh, advanced engine performance class, which would be smog, but uh, picked up quite a bit about it so far. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Yeah, he's, he's working full-time, and he's put many hours into my own vehicles lately, so I'm getting something back out of it. I got some work for him. <laughs> Do you now? <laughs> well, he's full-time at S&S Automotive and uh, bullets up here, so... Anyway, so um, you know, I, I remember, I remember the cars from the seventies and stuff. They they seemed like they were just such awful dogs and terrible power. Like mm-hmm. you could have a three fifty engine that would only have like one hundred twenty horsepower coming out of it. You hit the gas and it was a slow response. And I always was told that was like part of the smog equipment how it was set up. Is that was it just like a bad design? I mean, they didn't really seem to have it down to get power and to be able to lower emissions back then. Well, and what's interesting, if you had, if you had like a, a, and a lot of them were, you have a 350 or a 302, they might have had 90 horsepower at one time because they wanted to reduce the compression, compression so low that it wouldn't create NOx. NOx is created by heat, and heat is created by a lot of compression. A lot of compression gives you a lot more horsepower, but it creates NOx. And so they reduced the compression so much to reduce the NOx that you end up losing your power. Um, but and, and other manufacturers at that time did a better job. Like if you had an old Honda CVCC, when it comes to per cubic inch, that actually had plenty of power due to the fact that they made a combustion chamber that didn't create so many knocks and didn't get quite so hot. And, and when you say knocks, you're not talking about the noise. You're talking about the nitrous oxides. Nitric, nitrous oxide, absolutely, yes. And NO2, NO1, NO3? Yes. Mostly NO2. That's the mostly NO2, and that and that's yeah. 
that's the one that's so culpable of smog. Yes, it is. And when it comes out of your exhaust pipe from created by heat, it, when it sees sunlight, it actually turns brown. And when it turns brown, that's that's your smog. Um, it's a it's combination of sunlight um, um, combining with nitrous oxide. Yeah, I remember the first time I landed at LAX, first time I'd ever been to L.A., <laughs> looking out the right, and there were white clouds, and looking out the left, and there were brown clouds. That's about right. <laughs> so then in uh, the early 80s, like starting in 81, there started to be uh, onboard computers that were driving uh, the air intake systems. So we started using uh, fuel injection more uh, with high controls. What, what did that do for engines? How did that make them run better? Yeah, so we're able to, because before, first it was just mechanical. And then most manufacturers went to vacuum design to control many different things. Vacuum is not very reliable. I remember the early 80s, late 70s, vacuum tubes over everything. Mm-hmm. And they used vacuum for that. And it wasn't, it was not very reliable. And it was, um, and it would also, once again, cause problems with power, depending on what system you had. When they went to electronics, it was more reliable and more precise. Uh, uh, electronic solenoid is more precise than a vacuum modulated something that will get vacuum eventually. So they made it more and more precise. And with more precision, you can tune the engine better to help with both create more horsepower while still keeping within what's needed for smog. So if you notice, starting about 85, cars started getting a little peppier again. You can get your Mustang GT that now that same 302 doesn't have 90 horsepower. Now you're closer to 200 horsepower. Wow. Um, with multi-port fuel injection, and they're able to keep, you know, obviously the emissions is, emission requirements now isn't what it is now, but they're able to fine-tune it to make it run better and yet still meet the emission standards of its time. Well, now you, um, have, now you have computers doing, you know, automatic feedback loops on all these controls. Yeah, well, even then, that's when the feedback loop started, was okay. about in the 80s, and then now not only can we make the electronics incredibly fast and precise, but the machine work is so much more precise than it used to be. The machine so, work? You mean the precision of the components? Uh, the compounds of the engine itself. If you're talking about a modern car, that's one reason we get so much power out of such an efficient engine now, is the engine itself is way more efficient in the design and in the compounds it's made out of. Um, and you can adjust so many more things with electronics so i mean back in the day your camshaft is what it was if you had an rv cam you had good low torque and no high end and if you had a high performance cam you had really good high end but you, you had a very low idle well now you can change that cam into wherever you want it to be depending on your rpm your cams are fully variable on most cars now both your intake and exhaust but if you're at low you get good low torque and smooth idle and if you're at high rpms the cams change and you right the power band you want to be at, which gives you better mileage and at the same time better emissions because they can control exact timing on it. So with the new technology made it possible to build and create these things and actually make it mechanically work as well as electronically. Something that I think goes along with the uh, improvements in manufacturing and machining ability for, you know, creating engines is that uh, with modern, uh, you know, machining, we've been able to, uh, makes like tighten up tolerances on engines so we can have thinner oils that create less drag to uh actually influence uh better fuel like fuel efficiency for an engine yeah that's why almost everyone's on a zero weight oil now too so synthetics have less drag and longer longevity and the thinner the oil like a zero weight oil once again less drag 
Um, I don't recommend using the zero weight on a vehicle not designed for it, but if you have the vehicle that's designed for it, it does create a more efficient vehicle. So the newer engines are getting tighter. That means they actually like hold compression. They like have less piston blow-by on the engines. That, that yep. allows them to use uh, turbos and stuff more efficiently too, right? Exactly. And almost everything went turbo um, as far as keeping up with efficiency and horsepower. If you notice, most vehicles now, they're direct injection with a turbo. Whereas before we had a carburetor and the vacuum pulled the fuel in with the, the, with the air and it went to the cylinder, somewhat floppy, but it got there. And then we went to a throttle body injection where we kind of sprayed it in evenly. And then we went to an individual fuel injector right there at the valve, which is way more precise. Now we're shooting directly into the cylinder, electronically controlled to make that perfect mixture for each individual cylinder. See, if you have eight cylinders, each one could have a slightly different mixture than the other, depending on how the vehicle's running. Yeah, I've got and, and, and that's because of sensors on the exhaust and and input that the computer's yeah. analyzing and saying, yeah. oh, incomplete combustion, we need to crank this variable down. Yeah, so you got, you got sensors on, on, the, on the camshaft and on the crank that are counting, and so they know what rhythm it should be. Then you have sensors on the side of the block, which are called knock sensors. They're looking for a ping or a knock or a pre-detonation is what a knock is. So it knows exactly where it's going to be before it pre-detonates. So it's right there on the verge of pre-detonation. Um, uh, you have um, your O2 sensor has gotten way more precise, where it, it measures how much O2 is coming out of your exhaust to know exactly what the mixture should be in order to have that perfect blend, which is normally considered 17, 14.7 to 1. Um, fuel mixture is what it usually wants, and it, and it can make it more and more exact. And then you force feed it with your turbocharger, which helps create your torque, and it also helps with your mileage because now it's, it's not just sucking air in, it is being given air, so the engine doesn't have as much um, drag on it. Huh. One of the things that I found really interesting this guy told me about was uh, that my Ford uh, EcoBoost engine, I've got a Ford F-150 with an EcoBoost, uh, you know, when, it, when I come up to a light or something and put on the brakes, the engine actually stops. And then it starts mm-hmm. again as soon as I let up. And he was telling me that it's actually the stored compression in the engine that helps to start it? Yes, depending on the model. Yes, it can be that helps you start it. Um, also, that, that whole start-stop, that is it, – it came out as a rough start, I'll tell you, when I worked for my previous <laughs> – I worked for a manufacturer because people did not like it at all because it did not – it hiccuped quite a bit. And it gotten better and better. But really, the ultimate ones are the hybrids because when they you have a start-stop, all the time, hybrid electric motor. All and the time. All the time, and it starts and stops when it wants to, and um, you don't even feel it. It's just it's you know, it smooth. it's re- it's relatively smaller than your average car engine. Yeah. So it's actually able to save some of the pressure in the cylinders for several minutes before it's needed to start the engine again. Not minutes. It's usually seconds. But yes. Oh. Okay. Wow, that's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty amazing, though, that it can do that. I mean. I'm picturing old engines, you know, like a an old '60s style, like you know, V8 engine, which might uh, get uh, 200 horsepower and get 15 miles per gallon. And now we're looking at things that are half that size, get twice the mileage, and have twice the horsepower. Uh, you know, so we're, we've come a long ways. We really got emissions way down. I, I read something in the EPA that says emissions are down from the '60s by about 99 percent. It uh, looks like our horsepower and fuel efficiency are both doubled. Is that pretty typical across the industry? 
That's pretty typical. The downside is the emissions as far as harmful gases, what was considered harmful gases, was, you know, your, H- your um, HCs and your CO2s and your NOx. That's what we want to get rid of, which is your, your hydrocarbons, your partially emits, your, your raw gas, and your, and your, um, and your um, noxious, nitrous oxide, what we're trying to get rid of. But now CO2, which is what we are all striving for because CO2 is a natural occurrence in the atmosphere, is causing greenhouse gases. So that's causing our whole planet to warm, which is why no matter how efficient you make a gasoline engine, it's not going to be for the long term because all of them, if they're running perfectly, are putting out the tailpipe is CO2, which we don't want to increase any more CO2 than we have to at this point. So, so but, then we have but the, the less they consume per mile, the better. The less you consume per mile, the better, exactly. Your car can never be, by today's standards, completely clean because it's still but putting out. What, you know, what, was it, what was a typical, you know, late 60s muscle car? What was a 1966 uh, Mustang's mileage on the freeway? Oh, God. Well, it depends on what you have. I mean, back then you didn't get anything. So in 66, if you had the six-cylinder, it would be about 26 or 25. If you had the 289, it was about 18. And if you had a... A 427 Cobra jet, it might be a negative number per mile. <laughs> Four miles per gallon or some ridiculous thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm so glad we got it past that. Hey, so we... Now it looks like the uh, performance cars, I mean, you know, we, we have electric cars, and I, I hear that a lot of uh, you know racing uh, organizations won't allow electric vehicles to compete against gas engines is that is that pretty true all the way around or are there any are there any race systems where they're using both types of vehicles well like formula one they have um their current formula one car is a hybrid car it has a gas engine and an electric electric motor um they're probably the only one that's really well known that's using electric um really what what it's about when it comes to racing is comparing apples to apples i mean your electric motor is going to have 10 times more torque um, depending on the build you make. But on the flip side of that, um, how long are you going to run on the course without refueling and how long is that refueling going to take yep, yep. when your um, electric batteries are down? You're going <laughs> to win in a sprint, but you ain't going to make the Daytona 500. And honestly, in the society, I, I've, I've driven quite a few electric cars. Um, and, and like I said, even the school here has a Tesla, which I've used a few times for outreach programs. And um, range anxiety is a real thing. And it's not so much that... You, you can't find a place to charge. It's just how long is it going to take me? Mm-hmm. Because depending on the charger you find, it can take you 20 minutes or it can take you four hours. And that four hours, you might not have time to be sitting around. And yeah. so until the infrastructure gets better, and this country is doing really fairly well, I think, but when the infrastructure gets better, the range anxiety will well, go that, down. But range, yeah. range anxiety is a real thing. <laughs> both, both California and uh, the feds have you know, put forth major commitments to expanding uh, access to charging. Yeah, and hopefully the industry will still become more and more standardized because I know last time I went on a road trip, the charging station I was planning on did not work with the vehicle I was driving. Mm. And so then I was like, oh, God, where am I going to (laughs) go? I planned it out just to this point, and this is not the point I need to be at. Yeah, well, let's remember a hundred years ago when cars were first about, there wasn't a gas station on every corner. Yeah. You know, yeah, it took a while. You had to, to haul up. your cans with you. All right. There was exactly. actually a and story I, about. I see that happening here too. Exactly. Yeah. 
Same thing with the horse. <laughs> hey, we've gotten a couple of phone calls. Should I give out our phone number and invite people in? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Uh, sure. If you want to join the conversation here with motorheads and geeks, uh, it's Michael Pratt. Michael Pratt, Pratt from Mendocino County Community College, and what's it's the automotive automotive technologies department. Automotive technologies department. Uh, it's eight nine five two four four eight, and we got a caller already who knew the number before I said it. <laughs> Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Yeah. I am a electric car supporter and um, also a solar energy guy. And I've done about $1.3 billion worth of solar energy and wind energy. And when we all talk about doing this switch over to electric cars, there's an assumption that there's electricity to charge them up. Yep, we got to do both. Mm-hmm. And the reality of it is, and and in a, in a weird personal level, I, I, I took a drive down to SoCal, close to Arizona border, and the, I mean the dams are like there's just no water. It's empty. There's running hydro, and so this concept that we're going to spend fifty to a hundred thousand dollars to buy electric cars, but where is the electricity going to come from? Or it's going to come from solar and wind. And again, I am literally a solar guy. Um, well, we're 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 bumping up against a limit economically on the solar in California, anyhow. Where we've got enough solar when the sun is shining. It's when the sun is not shining that that's when we need the power. And and we our last show we had, you know, an outfit that's pushing a large-scale energy storage system. Gravity storage. Gravity storage, not battery. Yeah. Oh, got it. And I'm working on, it's called the Gemini Project in Nevada, which is the largest solar and battery um, storage project in the world. And um, why it sounds good, and I am a supporter, but in reality, what we're looking at in California and even the gas tax, let's let's roll with that for a second. So there's a gas tax. So if everyone, let's just say, had a hundred thousand dollars or fifty grand to buy an electric car tomorrow, there's no electricity to put it back into the grid. And two, the gas tax supports all the roads and stuff. Yeah, we'll, and so we'll have to we'll tax us in a different way. Yep, we're gonna have to. And a different methodology. And then you get into lithium at cobalt. You got to get it like the whole like cobalt, lithium, cobalt thing's got to like die. Tesla's finally getting around to it. I went to 86% of every battery company in the entire world. Personally, I went there. The whole cobalt thing has got to go. You got to go some other technologies on it. And you guys, it, it's not real right now. No, it, it's not real. We're, we're, we're hoping to move it that direction. Is your message, yeah. it's not real, therefore we shouldn't be talking about it? No, I'm not saying you shouldn't talk about it. I'm telling you the reality well, we've... of the industry. I can tell you that I have done $1.5 billion worth of renewables 
and no one on this call has. And I'm telling you how it is in the world right now. We should all talk about it. It's all super cool. I want to do an electric car, et cetera. But the reality is California this summer is not going to be able to not have rolling brownouts. Okay, yeah, let's, let's roll back to 1906, though, and start talking about the infrastructure we had to put in to get uh, gas cars going. We've got, you know, we've got the future is coming. It's going to roll, and we're going to start developing this stuff. These answers are going to come. You know, yeah, today we cannot switch 100% to an electric fleet. But over the next 20 years, we're going to do a whole lot toward that. So say, no, we don't have it today. Yeah, we don't. So what? We're going to develop it. But it's not 20 years if you look at with the even the the RPS for renewables are in California. You look at it's more like eight years, and we're going to not have any gas cars and all this stuff. There is no plan to have the grid be able to support automobiles, even our own grid right now. There is no plan to do this. You have oh. Gavin Newsom standing up saying, we're going to do all this renewable stuff, but there is not an actual plan, you guys. There isn't. There are, there are lots of plans. They're just not all dialed in together. No, we're going to have another uh, solution coming up in the Aptera electric vehicle that can actually charge 40 miles worth of driving in a day by its own onboard solar panels. If you're a short distance driver, you aren't going to need to plug into the grid at all, theoretically, with that one. That's another solution. And, that's and, 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 I am an investor in Aptera, and I yeah. agree. I'm an investor, and I'm like in the line to get an Aptera. But as far as what everyone is talking about, the, 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 the issue, guys, is that there's these disparate, like, arguments about how to do all of these things. Hey. And while it sounds great, it's not happening right now. There's no transmission system. So, 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 so we, we've got a lot to work on. And I'm, I'm going to give some other people a, a chance to call. The line's been full the whole time you've been on. I think you've made your point that we're not there yet, and we agree. Awesome. That caller got stuck on hold for too long. Hello, caller. You're live on the Renewable Energy Hour. Hey, Renewable Energy Hour. Listen, I really appreciate your program. A couple of comments. Uh, One, um, in motorcycle racing, there's a a big international uh, motorcycle race called Moto E where they run uh, all electric motorcycles against one another. And the problem there is the weight of batteries and the heat they generate, but their speeds are increasing almost equal to... Uh, I'm sorry. We, That's uh, okay. We, we dropped some lines. I'm afraid I lost Mike. But go ahead. That's Okay. I don't know if you heard my comment about motorcycle racing, but there's a program in an international racing called Moto E where they race motorbikes uh, all electric, all against each other. And the, the big problem is the heat generation and the weight of the batteries. That's what's interfering with the increase in speed. But that brings me to my next point. You know, we, we talk about motor efficiency, which has increased just incredibly, but the problem is we still make these vehicles to move 200-pound people that weigh three tons. And as long as we have that, you know, our airplanes are enormous and heavy, all of these things that add weight 
and resistance to the air that you're moving through, a lot of drag. And let's just be uh, totally frank about it. The oil companies and the car companies aren't in the business of being more efficient than they want to be because for them, the more they sell, the bigger the product, the more, the more gasoline that it costs, the better they do. So there's a whole twisted economic situation, which I know you guys have kind of been talking about, and I just wanted to say those two things. I appreciate your show a lot. Thanks. Thanks for the call. Yeah, thank you. Had my mic potted down. And we just had a couple of callers there. There we go. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, I was very impressed by the amount of knowledge shown by your guests on the automotives that I grew up with. And uh, it's quite refreshing to hear somebody that knows all the different engines and everything else. That was pretty cool to listen to that. But I have a question about, um, I missed the first part of the show. I don't know if you talked about, you know, using hydrogen as a battery. We we uh, didn't. We didn't. Because, I mean, that seems pretty relevant to what we're trying to do when we're talking about the grid and we're talking about, you know, Time of use mattering, you know, mm-hmm. for when we can do it. Well, and, and put it, put methods it, of storing power. I, I've been wanting to put in excess PV capacity on the grid, and anytime it's not needed, be making hydrogen with it. And you can and then, you can burn it in your your gas range and hot water heater. Um, the yeah. last class that I was going to teach, or the, the, the um, alternative fuel class, which would be the last class, kind of the highest class in, in the program, actually does cover hydrogen as well as electric cars. I, I should have mentioned that earlier. And when I worked for cool. BMW, they were the ones that actually kind of pioneered the whole um, liquid hydrogen 7 series, which they made in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And actually, they had one in the 2000s, which um, I was actually working for BMW when Jay Leno drank out of the tailpipe, and that was a big deal on the news <laughs> and other places. Uh, he drank pure water out of the, he said it tasted oily, out of the hydrogen 7. Um, the, efficient, the, the drivability was very drivable. The efficiency as far as how much energy it took to create and cool that hydrogen compared to what you got out of it by driving it hasn't been quite balanced yet. No. And they, BMW is really focused on hydrogen for decades. So they is had Toyota. To shift when Tesla started selling models, and it's like, oh, we got to shift our thought and continue to work on it, but put it on the back burner until um, we get some electric going. But there's multiple manufacturers yeah. that have been working on hydrogen well, cells and hydrogen engines. Part part of the the previous caller's points were we're not there yet on the hydrogen because a yeah. almost all the hydrogen we we have in the U.S. is created from natural gas and not from solar, renewable, contemporary energy. Um, And, you know, the costs aren't there. The infrastructure's not there. But those are things that we should be looking at. Yeah, we're facing excess solar capacity. Yep. Well, I I want even more solar so that we can do all of our solar all the time, all the day. And be, make, about and be making a lot more solar than we actually need during the day so that yeah. we can we can put it into, you know, gravity storage of electricity, battery storage of electricity, hydrogen production for transportation and heating. So where does that leave us with the um, with, you know, California 
talking about changing your net metering and stuff. Where are we with that? I talked to you a few weeks ago, yeah. and you were like, hold on, and I'm wondering if there's any new info out. They have, I, I have not gotten new info, except that they're going, whoa, we got a serious reaction from the public. We can't do what we were saying, and they've <laughs> stepped back into the shadows and are talking about what they can get away with. So that means that maybe I can go ahead and put in a solar array. Maybe, maybe. Um, uh, God, what was there? I'm trying to think of the website, which would be a good place to see a latest update. But, yeah, they're they're back uh, revamping everything. So you may have several months before whatever they come up with. And whatever they come up with isn't going to be as bad as what they were suggesting in January. So if you you already have a system, can you lock in, you know, rates, or are they just going to switch everybody over? And so all of a sudden you're getting, you know, commercial, you're getting, uh, you know, commercial rates for selling it and retail rates for buying it instead of how it is now. We will will see. We don't know. Okay. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I love your show. All right. Dave, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Got a few minutes left here. Hey, Mike. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question real quick. If you did have an old classic car, like an old 60s Mustang or something like that, how can you improve that to get better emissions and better fuel mileage? Yeah, I've heard about the new EFI that you can put on them. So there's so many different ways to do that. Even my 67 Mustang I had since I was in high school, I put fuel, multi-port fuel injection on it, which gave me better mileage, but then I also did a whole bunch of tuning stuff to make it more horsepower, and I don't think I actually ended up with any better mileage, but I gained about 100 horsepower. Um, but there's many different setups you can get. A lot of them are self-tuning, and nowadays it's gotten to be really popular, or at least somewhat popular, to start getting these crate electric motors and electrify your car. Or you can use a rear differential out of a hybrid um, um, Highlander, which has electric motor differential, and as long as you're clever enough to get the battery pack to work, you can actually propel it completely electrically. Um, There's different... Companies are doing different things now, but to make it fuel-injected is, is easier now than it's ever been. A lot of these systems are bolt-on and self-tuning, and it'll give you a little more power and a lot better mileage. Um, the emissions, depending on your car, you're not necessarily going to want to spend the money for a catalytic converter and a, and, a, um, and a secondary air pump and that sort of thing. But overall, your mileage should go up, and your overall emissions should be down with a lot of these bolt-on kits. Uh, something that I was hearing today, actually, from uh, my coworkers, Upton and AJ, they were telling me that Ford uh, released this crate package you could buy. It was a motor you could put on like old 70s, 60s style trucks, and that ended up selling out within the first 24 hours it was on sale. A motor? You mean electric? Yeah, electric motor. Like you could bolt it on, just electrify your truck. So you could retrofit old trucks, like old ones, like 60s or yeah. even the 80s? Yeah, or later? like a whole kit to electrify your classic Ford truck. Wow. Yeah. Specific. God, I, I remember the old Electro Automotive Association where it was quite the procedure to convert an old truck. But now they have mind you, this was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Hey, <laughs> I, I, I believe we have a very patient caller waiting in the wings. Are you there, caller? Hi. Is this Doug Livingston? This is. Hi, um, Robert calling from Fort Bragg. Doug, I wanted to consult with you about my solar powered well. I wanted to convert my well to solar power. 
I understand there's a mathematical formula that you can use. I want to keep the 230-volt AC well pump 110 feet down in the well because it's strong and powerful and delivers the water we need. I just bought a bunch of solar panels and batteries from Advanced Solar in Ukiah, and I need to determine how many watts the inverter should be, how many solar panels I need to hook up and how many batteries so I can run the well day or night. Are, and it's a mystery to me, so are, I need to talk to you about that. Are, are you associated with Robert Matson? This is me, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I have your phone number, and I meant to call you today. Let me Let me try to keep that up on my phone, and I'll give you a call tomorrow. Hey, thank you so much, and bless your heart. I I really appreciate what you're doing. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Hey, we're coming up to the end. Uh, We we should probably say goodbye and get that that Facebook uh, ID out there. Yeah, so I'd like to do that. Um, The the, the, um, automotive department here has a fairly active car club. Um, They do quite a few things in the community. They make some extra money um, working on... um, students and, and um, faculty's cars, um, and we invest them into the community, our own supplies. And the latest thing we've been doing is a coffee and cars, the first Saturday of each month. Um, we try to do them in different locations, get to know the community a little better. Um, this next one's going to be this coming Saturday, actually, at DMF Audio in downtown Ukiah. Um, yep. We host, we bring coffee, we bring donuts. And if you ever want to follow us or find us on Facebook, the club is and you have to do the whole words because it's a small, it's still a small search engine within Facebook because we have a small group. But it is Mendocino College Automotive Technology Club, and you can kind of follow us and what we're doing. Um, I, yeah, anyone's welcome to, to follow, follow what we're doing. All right. Hey, well, thank you very much for joining us. I, this was a change of flavor, uh, a kind of geek I'm not. <laughs> You're not a motor geek. I'm not a motorhead, uh, but but it was fun. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun for me as well. All right, take care and thanks Mike, for the time and good luck uh, with your shop expansion and everything. I hope someone brings you in some hybrids. I I hope so. That'd be awesome. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, guys. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.